Welcome to the Heavy Metal Strength Coach Podcast. Hi guys and welcome to another Heavy Metal Strength Coach podcast. I'm the Heavy Metal Strength Coach, Chris Kershaw, and it brings me great pleasure to announce my latest guest today is Matt Gary. Matt Gary is or goes by the moniker Upholding the Standard, which we will definitely go into a little bit later in this episode. He has a bachelor degree in kinesiological sciences. He's a certified strength and conditioning specialist. He's been the head strength and conditioning coach at, was it DeMatha? Um, Catholic school. Yes, sir. That's right. Um, and since 1996 has been coaching powerlifters and athletes of all levels, has more than 25 years of competitive powerlifting under his belt. And he founded Supreme Sports Performance and Training or SSPT with his wife, Susie Hartwig Gary. Anything else that I'm missing off there? I know you've got a few USAPL things in there as well. Yeah, I think you pretty much nailed it uh, pretty, pretty well. Uh, Currently, I guess in terms of my role within USA Powerlifting, I am uh, I'm a senior international level coach, which is, I guess, the highest level uh, coaching credential that you can achieve. Um, I was, up until recently, the coaching education director, which meant I was in charge of uh, overseeing and basically administering um, the coaching certification program. And I was in a managerial role in terms of the other instructors that we have, but now I've kind of stepped away from that position and I'm just now serving as part of the faculty. So I'm still an instructor, still teach the coaching certification, but I've been alleviated of some of those managerial duties. So I'm still doing that, still coaching a lot of individuals and uh, assisting on teams when I'm called to do so or, or, or when the opportunity presents itself, obviously, you know, with the world being turned upside down recently, those chances have been slim, but we're getting ready to go to nationals here in a week. So I'm super excited about that opportunity. Uh, with a lot of the people that I have on the podcast, they say that they didn't necessarily choose their path. It kind of chose them. Was it the same with powerlifting for you or did you fall in love at first sight? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And, and you know, at a lot of commencement speeches, you'll hear the speaker get up there and say, find your passion. And I think that that's poor advice because I think it, it implies that that's supposed to be some, you know, born inherently within you. And I think the more appropriate way to look at it is cultivate your passion. And what I mean by that is, is you have to, you have to try different things, man. <laughs> you have to go down different paths and, and try things. And oftentimes you'll find something that you suck at and you're like, man, well, that's definitely not for me or I don't enjoy it. Or you might find something, you know, that kind of lights your fire um, and maybe you're not even good at it, but it really gets you excited and gets your motor running. And I think, you know, then you begin to cultivate that. You begin to work at it. You, you hone your craft, you become a master of your craft, et cetera. And then that becomes your passion. And so I think with powerlifting, I've always been kind of an analytical numbers oriented, pretty objective view kind of guy. And I think that really turns me on to powerlifting. You know, things are pretty black and white. You know, you either you make the lift or you don't. I mean, clearly there's objective criteria that you have to uphold and that sort of thing. 
but it's pretty simple. You know, the person who lifts the most weight at the end of the day and, and within their weight class is crowned the champion. And so I, I really like that objective aspect of it. So I think the numbers aspect and the opportunity for incremental progress always kind of turned me on to it. The coaching thing really kind of uh, was in thrust upon me, always kind of fancied myself as being a good teacher, but some of these international and national opportunities, you know, were given to me and, and, and I wasn't sure if I was going to like them, but, you know, kind of grabbed the bull by the horns and just ran with it. And uh, it's been something that I've become quite fond of. When you look into the name Matt Gary and you speak to various coaches in this field, you'll very quickly realize as a reputation that you're an excellent game day coach if you want to bring in someone to excel at that then you're the man to speak to I wonder if you could say about something that makes you that person what makes a good game day handler wow um I know it's a big one no no it, it, it's an excellent question and it's the right question to ask you know I, I think a coach's role in its most basic form or sense or definition if you will is to put their athlete or their subject or what have you. I mean, you could be a you know, coaching the violin, a violin instructor. It's to put your pupil, your athlete in the best position to succeed. And so if you do that, if you open up and avail those opportunities to them, then it is incumbent upon them to step through that door that you've opened and to execute their task. And so in terms of how we apply that to game day powerlifting, I always coach with the mindset of how would I like to be coached? And so I know and understand the things that stress me out during competition. And that is largely has to do with timing and, uh, you know, when to go and when to do things. And when I'm in that element, I rather like being told what to do and when to go. And so when I think when you can alleviate the stressors that might weigh down an athlete and just give them that release so that they can focus on the task at hand and nothing more, I think that's what makes a really good game day coach. Now that's, that, that's of course one step. Then the next thing is you have to have a comprehensive understanding of the rules that you're playing by. And so you need to really, really understand how to play the game, because at the end of the day with powerlifting, of course, we're crowning a champion based upon the, you know, the kilos lifted and so forth. But oftentimes when battles are tight and lifters are, are of similar strengths, you know, it comes down to who's the best powerlifter. You know, powerlifting doesn't necessarily measure who's the strongest. It measures who's the best powerlifter. And the reason is, is because you only have nine attempts. And so when you only have nine attempts, then it becomes a game. And you are thereby trying to maximize the amount of points, essentially, if kilos are points, you're trying to maximize the amount of points or kilos that you can lift. And so it becomes a game. You know, this isn't necessarily a test day. You know, if it were a test day and we were going into the gym or better yet, let's say we were going into a laboratory and we were able to use, you know, bar velocity analyzers and, and high speed film and force plates and all these different things, we could matter of factly load up the bar and allow people to take essentially unlimited attempts, you know, going up a kilo at a time toward the end. And then we could find out, okay, this lifter is in fact the strongest at this lift 
but because you only have three attempts in competition, it becomes a game. And so piggyback or going back to what I said, comprehensive understanding of the rules, which is going to enable you to understand how to play the game. And then of course, playing it effectively and maximizing strategy and understanding, you know, when to put on the foot on the gas, when to protect a lead and, and so on. And so, and a lot of that comes with uh, experience, you know, and, and the only way to become experienced is to do, is to, is to get in there and is to practice your craft. And so I've been really just overwhelmingly blessed with a lot of opportunities. And then of course, to just be connected with a lot of lifters who are just, aside from being amazing lifters, they're rock star human beings. And so that attracts me to them. And so when you can get together with somebody of like-minded values and then also, oh, by the way, they're really, really good at powerlifting and really good at executing. They make me look good, you know, and they go out there and execute. And like I said, it's just my job to get the, the right number on the bar. And I think that is a skill in and, in and of itself is being able to accurately assess how much a lifter has left in the tank. And the only way to do that is to literally watch thousands of attempts. Uh, that's the only way. There is no shortcut to that. And it's knowing your lifter and studying your lifter and seeing your lifter grind and seeing your lifter lift and, and move under load in certain positions with weights that produce different velocities. And so when you can tie all that in, you know, like I said, alleviate them of the stressors that might stress them on game day so that they can focus solely on execution. You also have a comprehensive understanding of the rules. You know how to play the game. And then of course you understand and know how to judge lifts and what they have left in the tank, then I think those are some of the key components that make a good game day coach. And again, comes with experience. Something that I send over to my athletes when we first start working together, when I'm explaining my role as a coach on game day, is that I'm essentially a stress dam. So there's all this stress behind this dam that my, so the, the lifting order might change, like attempts might change and it's my job just to be completely blank and just be the panic stays yeah. behind the yeah. eyes. And I have various yeah. strategies in terms of how I can eliminate that stress on, on competition day. And um, I wonder if you have like a checklist that you work through to protect your lifters from stress on that day. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, as you just said, you, you, you are the net, if you will, your, your responsibility is to catch all of those things in your net and deflect away from them. And so when you can do that and it's look, it's being on time, showing up on time, being on task, you know, get there early, get, you know, if your lifter, it's, if, if it's an international championships and they're getting weighed in and we're talking about some of these um, medals come down to, to grams of body weight, you know, and you want to oversee the, the weigh in process, then get there early. And if they already have a chaperone, then just make sure you're in the warm up room at the appropriate time. They want to see a friendly face. They want to be comforted. Uh, they want to know that you're there, that you're stepping into the arena and onto the platform side by side, going into battle with them and for them, that you're going to be an advocate for them. And as you said, a net to kind of catch all that stuff. So I also, as you said, I try my best when it comes to things like that, where the lifting order does change or they've something's come up and the, the meat directors hit a snag and they're saying, well, we were going to start 10 minutes ago, but now we're starting 30 minutes from now. Those are things that are completely out of your control and you need to take that away from the lifter, put it on your shoulders, put it on your back and you need to carry it. 
And I find that that works best when I take a pretty stoic approach. And like you said, you know, you're kind of blank faced and you don't allow anything to ruffle your feathers, so to speak. You can throw any, you know, you can throw anything at me and I'm going to take it and I'm going to catch it and I'm going to smile about it. And I'm not, because remember, you are not in control of the things that happen, but you are in direct and total control of your response to them. So when you can handle those things, then your lifter need not worry. So it is the coach's job on game day to handle all that, literally everything. Only thing the lifter does is execute. They go out, they make the lift, you huddle up with them when they come off the platform. How did it feel, et cetera? You give them a, an objective opinion of how it looked, and then you make the decision, you know, and you're not a tyrant in terms of putting in a number, but look, that's your decision and it's up to you, obviously, with the feedback from the lifter, but you have to have their best interests at heart. And, you know, I have zero attachment to any number other than the one that they can lift. Um, how much feedback from the lifter do you take on competition day? I, I take quite a bit. I mean, you, you know, I, I think also what that does is it's a two-way street, right? You, 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 you give respect to get respect and you give confidence to get that confidence back. And it's, it's buy-in, right? It's you want lifter buy-in so that they buy into what you're doing. And it's not fake. It's not, there's no pretense. There's no, this isn't false. You know, I genuinely want to know how that felt. And then I'm genuinely going to tell them how it looked. And again, this goes back to the homework that you do, the preparation that you do prior to the competition, whether, you know, look, best case scenario, if you coach your lifter in person, I mean, that's, 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 that's the best of all worlds is when you can see your lifter perform the lifts in person. But if you don't, then you're relying on video and so forth. And you know how these lifts look and so forth. So you understand and you have a good idea of, of bar speed and velocities and how they struggle and how they strain. So I, I do value very, very highly their feedback. I also know that they come off the platform with an emotional attachment and reaction to that lift. And I don't have one. I have an objective view. This is how it looked. <laughs> this is what I'm seeing. This is how you're moving. So I take their feedback and with my own, then we arrive at a good number. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I, I do value their feedback. It's very important because if you're so standoffish that you don't want any feedback and you pretty much stiff arm your lifter, then they feel shut out. And it, look, it's their competition. They're the ones competing in the arena. Yes, I'm competing as a coach as well, but I'm, I'm, I'm for them. You know what I mean? This isn't about me. It's about them and maximizing their performance. And so that feedback is critical because you're going to run into a world of problems if you don't value their feedback and if you don't give them permission to, to, to participate. Mm -hmm. So they've got to be part of every single part of that um, competition journey. Yeah, I think so. I think in terms of at least the attempts, you know what I mean? Inter look, you've got the warm-up scheme and the warm-ups laid out beforehand, and that's on you. You know what I mean? You're loading all the warm-ups. You're in control of all of the timing. You know, you, you know after weigh-ins and they, if they need to rehydrate and refuel and all these different things, you kind of nudge them and say, hey, let's get on it. Let's get going. You know, you need to get dressed, suited up, et cetera, et cetera. But you're in control of all that stuff happening. You're the ringleader. And you need to manage, you need to be a very, very good and effective time manager. 
because you were literally, you know, in a lot of sport, you know, whether it's, you know, American football or football, soccer, as you know it, uh, any sport, essentially, there's, there's, there's a clock, you know, there's a time in place, you know, in, in, in powerlifting, you need to control that clock for them. You need to be in control of the timing of the flow and warming them up on time, not rushing them so that they feel anxious or they feel exhausted by the time they hit the platform. Oppositely, you don't want to start overly soon or too soon because then they can get cold. But always a good, you know, look, you can always slow down your warmups, but you can't speed up without fatiguing your lifter. So better idea to start early, particularly if you have a if they have some kind of elaborate routine that they go through in terms of loosening up or dynamic mobility or meditation or whatever they need to go through, better to give them a little bit extra time than not enough, because again, you can always slow down. But suffice it to say, you're in control of that clock. You're managing the clock for them. So once again, the only thing they need to be concerned with is is the execution. And then I want feedback on how that lift felt and more globally, how they are feeling on game day, you know, particularly as you get into mid benches, getting around to deadlifts, you want to know, hey, how's your energy? How are you feeling, etc. These are questions that you need to ask and be cognizant of so that you can read and react appropriately. Do you have an agreed upon language and terminology with um, a lifter on competition day? Are they are they used to that terminology, or do you have specific? questions that you will ask them that they're familiar with and does that build over competitions or is that right in there before you agree to take someone on you know what i think the answer to that question um, is all of the above and what i mean by that is if i have a relationship with a lifter that i've been working with then clearly we have a vernacular we have a language that the two of us understand i give an example i've coached many times my good friend mike tushier you know from reactive training systems rts and mike if you've ever met him is is pretty introverted and pretty stoic and pretty quiet and so he and i have a have a discourse if you will that is of that's very concise and it's of few words because not many words need to be spoken it might even be a look a nod um eye contact that sort of thing he doesn't like to be bothered and when i say bothered i mean he doesn't like to be weighed down with a lot of conversation during the competition so fewer words are better than more. And so clearly I know how he works. We've worked together many, many times. And so we have that rapport that's built in and there's an understanding there. When I have a lifter that is more verbose or more loquacious or more animated or extroverted, whatever word you want to use, then, then yeah, you know, you have to, I think, meet the personality of your lifter, not the other way around. So if they are somebody who's naturally extroverted, animated, they like to get hyped up, well, then you need to be a cheerleader for them, you know, and you need to be kind of a rah-rah person and use lingo that they understand. And I think as you work with lifters more, that language becomes refined over time and you can become more concise over time. For instance, there's an expression that I use with my wife, Susie, lots of times, you know, multi-time world champion, 29-time national champion, and held the world record in the squat at 52 kilos up until a couple of years ago. And she was 48 years young doing that in the open class. Anyhow, there's a phrase that I will shout at her lots of times, and it's lock it up. And that short phrase right there means so many things to her, 
but it's concise. It's, I, I make sure that it's loud, that she can hear me. I say it in an aggressive tone and it, it ignites and turns on a lot of things to her rather than me over cueing her mm-hmm. with 17 different cues. I mean, she doesn't need that many cues and you don't want to overwhelm your lifter. You don't want to increase their anxiety. You want to decrease it and increase their confidence. So for someone like her, you know, that might mean, and look, if you shout tight to one lifter, that might mean for them, it might be a cue that's important to them. For them, it might be bracing and tightening their abs. For someone else, it might be tightening their glutes right before they descend in the squat. That might mean a lot of different things to different people, as opposed to someone just thinks, oh, this is one generic blank term that he kind of throws out. I mean, of course, there's this overarching theme of wanting to be tight in powerlifting, but it might mean different things for different people. And so Uh, lastly, to your question, if I'm working with a new lifter, I have a game day questionnaire that I will send out to them before the competition. And that questionnaire asks a lot of questions. And, and one of the questions that actually a couple of the questions it asks is I want to know what their favorite lift is versus their least favorite. And then I also want to, you know, because that kind of speaks to where their head might be and why they don't like the one that they don't care for as much. And I also want to know what cues do you prefer to hear for each lift? Because why the heck do I want to be shouting a cue that I think might be a relevant one that might completely derail their progress or their mindset? Again, you don't, sometimes less is more. Don't be that guy or that girl who's out there shouting 25 different things when your lifter walks out there. They're over, you're going to overwhelm them. One or two small nuggets is all they need. And it needs to, it needs to be what is germane and specific to them. So hopefully that answers your question in terms of the language. Absolutely. I, I get so frustrated when a coach is giving, you know, 25 different coaching cues, maybe using vocabulary that that person's, suddenly never heard like you've never shouted tight to me before I squat and it's like well why haven't you agreed this terminology beforehand like you see this look in their eyes like oh god and then the lifts in the warm-up room start to change and you can see that they've never lifted like that before and with my lifters I just want to say right let's go or execute something like that and then that's it from there beautiful Something that I like to work on is like um, a pre-competition phase where we can maybe work on some different cues. We can work on some technical stuff. Maybe we do conventional rather than sumo or something like that. And then we get to the competition phase. And for me, it's somewhere between eight and 16 weeks out where we actually stop working on technique at all. And we just work not making sure that technique's in a good place, but then we're not changing anything from that point. Do you have a similar approach to that? Yeah, I think, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I like what you said there. You know, I, I think I liken, this is going to be maybe a longer form answer, but I think sometimes as coaches, the terms form and technique are used interchangeably. And I, I think they're different. I think, so let's start with form. I think form is a checklist or a bullet point list, if you will, of the boxes that you need to check in order to perform a task, in order to execute a task. So clearly in the squat, you need to either break at the hips or the knees, and that's going to be dependent upon anthropometry. You know, you need to sit back slightly, 
with a rigid torso brace, all of these different things, you know, keep your knees out, yada, yada, yada. We can go through a 50 point list of things that are necessary to complete a successful squat. That, that's form. And generally speaking, all of us needs to relatively adhere to that form. Technique on the other hand is like your fingerprint. That's your signature on this form. And so clearly technique is gonna vary from lifter to lifter. So getting back to what you said, I think technique is in a constant state. I think if you're true to yourself, it's in a constant state of refinement. You are never, and this is not a pessimistic view. It is one of mastery is, is the why I'm speaking these words. It's not pessimistic to say you never quite get there. It's one of humility and a sense of acquiring mastery to say, you know what? I can be better. I can refine this. I may have gone up or down a weight class. I may have an injury or something that I'm dealing with that has altered my movement patterns. And therefore I may adjust my technique around that. So back to your point, we're in a constant state of refinement. I liken it to a, a samurai sharpening his sword. Your sword can never be sharp enough for battle. You always want it sharper. And so same is true with technique. You always want your technique to be top shelf, top notch. And so as you approach competition and you get into that peaking phase, you know, to your point, yes, technique should be refined by that point. You shouldn't be making a lot of changes, particularly when you're getting into these heavy loads and singles and doubles, and it should be automatic. You know, you should be able to be like a robot. Uh, you know, robotic, if you will. But I think it's, it's, it would be nearsighted to say that you're not, the technique isn't, at least in your consciousness, you know, you're not, you're not saying, oh my God, I have to do my technique when I go out there. No, you should be in your unconscious mind as you're executing because you have been in your conscious mind whilst training. So if you do pour in all the consistency and the preparation and you've, you've refined all that stuff, then once you get out there, you can just go on autopilot and, and rely on what you've learned. And I, I say to my clients, it's training to make you lift subconscious. And yeah. at, that, at that point, that's where you're going to see max performance. The ones that are worrying, the ones that yeah. are trying to change things on the day, they're the ones that are going to have the power of competition. Exactly. Yeah, and that's why when you go out there, you know, and, and like you said, it's a good cue execute or maybe you say be aggressive because at that point you're really just trying to amp up their intensity a little bit to your point they should be operating in their subconscious they're not consciously thinking about technique they just need to be reminded that damn it put your foot on the gas and go out there and hit this thing you know what i mean and just to be aggressive so yeah i like it now i'm, I'm not a coach that says like don't do this don't do that you're banned from doing that but something that i will encourage lifters to do in this pre-competition phase is to maybe stop watching other lifts on social media maybe stop researching other um, the big three because if you're researching it when you get into training i don't care if you're not thinking about it at all within your subconscious it is going to change how you move and it is going to change how you execute. Would you agree with that? And is that something that you've seen as well? I agree with that as much as I possibly can. <laughs> One million percent, yes. I, I We could do an entire podcast on the perils uh, and the deleterious effects of 
social media, on performance and on mindset. Suffice to say, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. You've probably heard that before. And if you're constantly comparing yourself to other lifters, you know, you're never going to think you're quite good enough. And, uh, you know, look, particularly as you get closer to a competition, you need to focus on the things that you can control only. And literally everything else is utter trivia. It's absolutely trivial. It doesn't matter if your closest competitor who you're fighting with for total or in the squat or whatever did X, Y, and Z in the, in the squat and they made it look, you know, like a lower RPE than you, you can't control what they do. And so, yeah, I think it's very wise to unplug, if you will, from, from social media, even if it means, you know, unfollowing some of the accounts that you would typically follow and going into your own kind of cave, so to speak, so that you can focus on your own performance, because that's the only thing that you can control is you. Those other people need to focus on them and let them run down the rabbit hole of, of looking at other people. But the, the, the more you do that, I, it comes down to time, right? Time is your most valuable asset. Why? Because it's non-refundable. And so you also get to choose how you spend your time. So spend your time on things that you're in control of and things that increase the probability of your success. And watching videos on Instagram of other lifters, in my opinion, do not increase the probability of your success, period. So another thing that I've found can derail lifters on competition day is advice from other lifters and so the, I don't know maybe so well you should have pushed your knees out more on that one uh, and I do something with my clients where we practice them just agreeing with me and just going completely blank I was like yeah great idea and it just going completely over the head and I just explain to them over and over and over people are going to try and give you advice and this is going to just get in the way and I I, I want people to make friends. I want people to meet people in the community because it is absolutely wonderful. And these people are very well intentioned, but I wonder if you've had any experiences with that as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point, right? I think, uh, you know, to your point, it is a wonderful community. The, the camaraderie of lifting heavyweights with other people is fantastic. And uh, a lot of these people become part of our chosen family, if you will. And I think, I think context is key, right? So I think, I think it's, whom you're getting the advice or the comment from, to your point. If that is someone that you look up to, if it is someone that is within your circle, if you will, someone that you trust, then perhaps you take that little nugget of advice. Maybe they have seen you lift quite often. You know, for instance, uh, a Mike Tushier. I think, I think if I wasn't coaching Mike on game day and he was working with somebody else and I saw something that I thought could add value to his performance, then I might kind of just pull him aside and say one little quick tidbit. But again, I also would be respectful of that boundary of not wanting to potentially impair his performance. So that would be a decision that I would take with some gravity, if you will. But on the other way, when you're receiving it, when it's your lifter or you yourself, again, I think it's context specific and I think it depends on who it's coming from. And so I think when you get advice from a lot of people who don't know you or don't know your lifts, while they might be well-intentioned to your point, they might be trying to be friendly. Yeah, you can just kind of glaze over, smile and thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> and, and just kind of move on. Because again, you know, on game day, you need to be so laser focused and, and, and just tunnel vision 
as to what you're doing, that all that extraneous information is out in the periphery and you need not cloud your own judgment. You know, your mind is like a box. And so you get to fill that box with the things that you want to fill it with. And that's clutter so far as I'm concerned. And so, yeah, I think, I think you, as you've said, you're kind of taking that right approach there where you just kind of glaze over and just smile and, you know, thank them and just move on. Yeah, I have this so. uh, the little phrase, this tongue-in-cheek that I use with my clients and while talking about powerlifting. And it's just that the potential for idiocy when adrenaline is high is, is very prevalent. And, and it's never more prevalent than at a powerlifting competition. I think it might even be like that for lifters as well. Like they've given advice and they don't even realize that they're doing it. But that, that kind of thing is going to happen. And it, yep. I normally use that phrase when I'm talking to my lifters because... If it's a first-time lifter, the chances are that an hour before they're supposed to be warming up, I might suddenly turn around and realize that they're not there and they've already started warming up. And this, right. this adrenaline does a crazy sure. amount of things. And I think it yep. increases that potential for bad decisions as well. Yeah, I agree. You know, there's an old saying too, um, the, the tongue weighs so little, yet so few can hold it. Oh, and I love so, that. You know, yeah, it's a great proverb. And, you know, and, and when in doubt, just hold your breath, <laughs> just a, a well-timed word of encouragement is meaningful, but don't try to dissect and splice and dice people's technique on game day and all that kind of stuff. Cause you're just going to throw a wrench into their program. Cause as you've said, by that time, they should be operating on, on subconscious and they've, they've already worked their plan and, and done what they've needed to do to get them there. And any of that stuff is just going to be extraneous and unnecessary information. How many competitions does it take you in general to understand a lifter? That's a really good question. I would say, I wish I could give you a knee-jerk response. Let me, let, let me answer it this way. I think if I had to say to understand a lifter, how many competitions would it take? Probably two, maybe three. Yeah. Two, 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 two to three. Was what I would say, and then if I if I can add on to that, some of that or, or or some of that understanding might come more quickly with some lifters than others. And so clearly, if you're working with a brand new lifter, a novice, you are painting on a fresh canvas. You have a clean slate, and so I think that understanding can come quickly. I think you that they, they, they're they're soaking it all up, and they're looking to you for expertise, for guidance, for wisdom, encouragement, all of these things. And so I think you can, you can set the tone a little bit in terms of, hey, how this is going to, how things are going to flow. Again, as I said, you meet them at their personality, but you're a tone setter and, and they're looking to you for some boundaries that they want to know how things are going to work. And so I think you're more likely to establish rapport and gain an understanding with someone like that. I think where you can run into some challenges. I don't want to say problems. They're not problems. They're just challenges. They're, they're obstacles, if you will, is if you get a more experienced lifter who might be coming from a different coach who has a different method than your own. And so in those times, right. And, and, and look, it could be a lifter who's a really good lifter. You know, they're genetically suited, they're high level, high ranking, and you get them and they come over to you. That process might take a little bit longer to, to, to fully understand them, th their nuances, their tendencies, their language, and all these sorts of things. And I think, I think all of these things are relationships, right? We are in relationship with other people, human beings. And I think it's incumbent upon us, 
communication needs to be the bedrock of what we do. That has to be just a foundational element of what you do. And so again, and, and you need to take that first step as the coach, you need to lead. You're the general and the troops will follow. So you need to take that first step and initiate. And when you know you're going to be working with a lifter and you're far out from a conversation, begin those conversations, whether it's hopping on a call with them like this, if you're working with somebody remotely, but you know that you're going to see them on game day, it's following their lifts on social media if they, if, or if they, if they post lifts or YouTube or wherever it is. And it's checking in with them and understanding and building rapport with them so that when you do get to the competition, you know, I've handled people at nationals before that I've never met that have either hired, hired me or they were given to me by another coach because the other coach couldn't handle them or something. And I like to have met them, if you will, as much as possible before actually meeting them in the warm-up room. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want I want to get in front of a camera and have a conversation like this so that we can, you know, uh, break the ice, so to speak, and so that we can establish and develop some rapport. You don't want to be walking into a warm-up room on game day and you've never even seen this person. That that that's shameful. So anyway, communication I think is at the root of all that. But if I were to give a generic response, I would say probably two to three competitions. Something that I've found is one of the most important conversations with a lifter is the debrief after a competition. So when um, the adrenaline has gone down, when they're starting to think about their performances on competition day, and that is when you can really make some important decisions around training. Would you agree? Amen. To your point, you know, lifters compete in this heightened state of arousal. And when the the blood is pumping, the adrenaline is pumping and coursing through their veins, so to speak. They lack some objectivity and some reason that they might otherwise have once the chalk dust has settled and the adrenaline and them being amped up when the volume is turned down. It's, uh, you know, the expression I can see so clearly now the rain is gone. Well, when you're competing, you know, you're kind of in the middle of that storm, if you will, and you're in this heightened uh, state. And so for positive or for negative, regardless of outcome, still objectivity and reasoning, I think comes better for the lifter after the competition. And so to your point, it's great to have these quote unquote debrief sessions, whether it's at the competition. Sometimes in the past, you know, I'll be at a world championships and you're, uh, you know, you're there for the course of a week if you're working with a national team and coaching different lifters. And so you may have a lifter on day one and you coach them and they have a good performance or perhaps it's a bad one for whatever reason. And, you know, they're wrapped up in the moment and I like to kind of catch up with them, you know, 48 hours after, sometimes even the day after they're still processing, you know, they're still in the midst of it. They're still attached to their feelings, if you will. And so sometimes it's good to kind of just create that space, give them some room. Uh, you know, maybe they want to talk to their significant other, a family member, a friend in the crowd, another teammate, whatever, um, and so forth. And then you can link up with them and have these really meaningful conversations and moments of reflection and kind of look back and say, hey, you know, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? You know, where can we improve? How do you feel about that lift? And, uh, you know, obviously video is a good tool to use, you know, because in the moment they may have thought that the lift felt worse than it looked and so forth. And so, 
Anyway, you use these different tools at your disposal. I think that's a very, very valuable time. And you can really pour into somebody's relationship and use that as a springboard, you know, as a linchpin moving forward. And it's that furthest point away from the next competition, which I think can yeah. really bring out some incredible insights because that, that pressure on performance does change decisions massively. And then suddenly that's gone away for a couple of days. It's almost like uh, the day after Christmas when they're not thinking <laughs> the furthest thing away from the peasant. So that's right. you can think much more clearly about it. So yeah, very yep. much agree with that answer there. So that was wonderful. Do you handle men and women differently or is it taken on an individual basis? The answer to that question is <laughs> yes or both. So I think, again, let me paint with broad strokes, very broad. These are, these are generalizations that I'm about to use. It certainly does not apply to everyone. Men tend to be overall a little bit more, what's the word? Vigilant, aggressive, hyper, if you will, overly confident, overly aggressive at times. Uh, oppositely, women tend to be overanalyzing at times, overthinking. And so you can approach those two situations clearly in, in different ways. With men, you need to you need to be a strong sense of and stand firm and keep them more level-headed in terms of, I'm telling you right now, you don't have that weight that you want to take. <laughs> you might think you do. Uh, that might be the weight that you want to lift, but it's not the one you are capable of lifting. And I'm, I'm here to maximize your performance in that way. With women, um, they have a tendency, as I said, painting with broad strokes, not all of them, to overanalyze, to get in their own head and get in their own way. And when you can keep them focused on process rather than outcome, that bodes well for them typically. And I think that frankly bodes well for everybody. When you can focus on task and execution, the outcome is going to take care of itself. Don't be, be process oriented, not outcome driven. So when you adhere to the process and the tasks involved in executing said, said you know, or, or, the, or, the, or the steps involved in executing said task, then the outcome will take care of itself. So I think with women, you just kind of have to have their head screwed on straight and keep their head screwed on straight. And, and also look, be, be comforting to them. But, you know, you know they're also looking, and that doesn't mean to baby them. Don't, don't mistake my words, because I work with some intense women who are, as fierce a competitors as I've ever seen and who are super confident and know when they go out there that they're the boss. So I don't mean that lightly at all. I'm just saying, generally speaking, you know, and you look, you need to comfort men too, right? They're looking to you for all these different things and you need to be that thing for them on game day. And sometimes that, that thing, you know, you might be a, a, a comforting and more compassionate uh, coach to one person, whereas to someone else, you might be a little bit more stern and a little bit more firm and a little bit more rigid. And you have to adjust your process and meet the lifter where they are, not try to fit them into your plan. And so hopefully that kind of answers your question. Yeah, I think, I think I agree with that entirely. And I think, again, painting with general strokes, women would tend to need more gentle steering um, to keep within 
that performance current where they're in the best mindset. Whereas yeah. with men, I see it more like a pinball machine. Like you're making the decision and hitting them in that general area rather than it being a gentle steer. It's like, no, you're being an idiot. Let's go and do this. <laughs> we're doing, we're doing this. Uh, yep. And because your adrenaline is up, you'll trust my decision. So as a coach, I have a minimum standard for what I want a lifter to achieve in terms of lifts out of nine. Yep. And I tell other people that it's seven out of nine. They, I need them to get seven out of nine. Um, yep. But secretly in my head, I consider that I've failed if I don't get them to like eight for nine, something like that, unless something really bad's happened. Have you got something similar in your mind where if they don't hit a certain number in your head, you're thinking, I could have done that better as a coach? Yeah, I think I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, when we when we use our, our mantra, if you will, for SSPT, upholding a standard, that means so many things. I think in competition, if you just look at competition very, very generally and very generically, and, and you can apply this to pole vaulting or high jumping or long jumping, or a lot of the track and field events where you, know, where you get three attempts, right? And apply that or kind of draw a parallel to powerlifting. Now you gotta make at least two out of three. I mean, you just, you've got to. So because we have three events, that means you gotta go at least six for nine. Now to your point, and I like it a lot, you said seven, which means they made at least one of the thirds, right? You know, they, they at least made one of their third attempts. And I like that a lot. I think, so in a very general basic level sense, I would say that just the minimum standard is six. Okay. Um, but yeah, you clearly want them to make at least one of their third attempts. And the goal is always to make nine. And that's not sandbagging. I hear these people all the time who say, if you go nine for nine, you're not trying hard enough. And that is the most asinine clown-like statement I've ever heard. It is absurd, okay? And nine for nine should not be your quote unquote unicorn, okay? A lot of people say that too. Well, nine for nine is my unicorn. Well, it damn well shouldn't be because then it means, it means you're either not executing very well or your coach and or yourself, if you're the one making those decisions, is not picking very good numbers. Yeah, I'm not. You know, so, and I'm not saying, look, it's competition and the ball doesn't always bounce your way and things happen in competition or you might come in with a niggle here and there or something like that that is, that is impairing your performance. So going nine for nine is not always going to happen. Obviously, <laughs> nobody always goes nine for nine, but that, that's never not the goal because making all nine attempts matter of factly increases the probability of you maximizing your total period. End of story. Nine attempts are better than eight, eight are better than seven and so on. So the more lifts you make and, and furthermore, it, I was said, if I stood behind the curtain or the banner at a competition, okay. And I, and I had noise canceling headphones on, let's say, or I couldn't hear what was going on and I couldn't see the lights. And I was standing there and all I had was my observation of looking at a lifter when they came off the platform behind the curtain, I could look at them and take a picture of their face and probably determine whether or not they made the lift or not, right? Just immediately in that moment. And so making lifts is positive. That's a win. It is the objective. Uh, that creates happy thoughts, happy feelings, it's all, there's a plus in every column when you, when, you, when you make a lift, right? It's just like strength is an asset. It's not a liability. And so you want to max, you want to make as many lifts as you possibly can. So 
hopefully that answered your question. Oh, yeah, that wonderfully. Yeah. And I think the amount of lifts that you get out of nine is a direct result of good decisions and the amount yeah. of good decisions that you can put into the preparation for that. So the idea that you shouldn't get that nine for nine because you make, it's almost like a willingness to make those bad decisions on purpose. And it just doesn't make for the best experience for a right. power lift from the biggest, sometimes one of the biggest days of their life. But that can also be said for a sandbagged nine for nine. So the idea that someone would go to a competition and make people lift, you know, however much underneath their best possible lifts yep. is also not going to give someone a good experience because they're not pushing their limits as well. Correct. The only time that I would essentially advocate or one of the rare times, if you will, I won't say only, but I'll say one of the rare times when you would have somebody go in and intentionally take their foot off the gas is maybe they've changed a weight class or they're trying a water cut technique or something like that. Yes. And, they're and they're really unsure. Or they're using this as a skills evaluation as a lead into a bigger comp, right? The, and it's almost like you're going in and doing a workout. You know, I'm going to go up to, let's say, normally what would be my second attempt, but I'm going to make that my third. Then yeah, then maybe you're undercutting yourself and underachieving, so to speak. But still, there's the process of traveling to the competition, making weight, being on time, warming up, going through the attempts, being judged by your peers and by a set of judges and referees. And, 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 and you can glean a lot from that. And so, but anyway, to your point, yes. I, I think that, I think that was an excellent, an excellent point there that I completely missed. Yeah. So in the last few minutes, what I like to ask my guests is, is there any mentors or significant people in your life that have given you significant hands up or help you to this day that have helped you get to where you are today that you just want to give a shout out to or talk about or anything like that? Yes, I would. First of all, and I know that this is probably going to sound cliche, but it's true. Um, I, I want to give a lot of props and thank and love to my wife, Susie. And here's, and here's why. Um, Susie and I met through powerlifting and Susie invited me to the first world championships that I had ever been to in 2003. And she invited me there, I thought at first to attend as a spectator or, or, or as a travel companion, but she wanted me to come there and be her handler and be her, her game day coach. Now, obviously under the provision and supervision uh, of the head coach, clearly. And so I overwhelmingly said, of course, I'll go. I would be happy to do that. That was my very first experience on the international scene was in 2003. It was the very first world championships that I'd ever been to. And I went there and I was literally a grunt. I said, look, let me just help you. She was competing equipped. I'll roll wraps, I'll wrap knees, I'll chalk backs, I'll pull up straps. I will be a servant unto the head coach. And that's what I did. And I helped coach Susie. He called the shots and gave, and get, you know, now I'd been her training partner during that time. So he asked for a little bit of my feedback and I gave it and which helped. And long story short, she won. And so I jokingly say it was only because I was there, but of course that's not the truth. So, but that was my foot in the door, if you will. And so every, that was my first experience being an assistant on a national team. And every year after that Susie made a team I was then invited back by that head coach to serve as an assistant. And so I cut my teeth 
and I gained my experience that way. So first and foremost, I want to thank Susie because I have literally and figuratively ridden her coattails because she's a very decorated lifter around the globe, all over the world. Secondly, I want to thank the head coach of that team, who is the USA powerlifting president, Dr. Larry Maley, because Dr. Larry Maley, Larry is a good friend of mine. He gave me that opportunity. He gave me those, those chances, if you will, to serve. And it's through those opportunities that he saw something in me and that he trusted me and that he ultimately allowed me to ascend up through the ranks of being an assistant coach and then being a head coach. And I've been blessed and just overwhelmingly fortunate to then become a head coach on five different teams. And I've been an assistant on somewhere north of 35 teams. So if not for those two people in my life, uh, literally, uh, I, I would not be where I am. I would not have achieved the things that I have achieved. I would have not been given these opportunities. And so it is for those two that they have opened up uh, all of these doors for me. And I'm just overwhelmingly blessed and just owe them just an overwhelming amount of gratitude to, to Susie and Dr. Larry Maley. That right there is why I love to ask that question. Where could people find out more about you and the services that you offer? Yeah, so the best way to connect with me, I guess, is probably through my website, which is just Supreme Sports PT. That's all one word, supremesportspt.com. That's our website for Supreme Sports Performance and Training, better known as SSPT. Um, if you want to connect with me or follow me on social media, on Instagram, it's just MLGary72. And then, of course, on Facebook, if you're still using Facebook, <laughs> uh, which, I know, which I know some of the younger crowd's not, and I don't use it too often, but if you want to connect with me there, that's fine. Uh, you can just find me under Matt Gary. Uh, you could also go on the USA Powerlifting website, and if you look under coaching, education, and so forth, there's some things in there that would clearly link, link that person to me. And um, I don't shy away from contact. So if you, if, if you wish, you can always send me a personal email. My personal information is on my website. It's also on my Instagram. And I invite those conversations. I always appreciate um, other people wanting to know kind of my opinion or what I have to say. I mean, it's, I, that's why I just feel honored to be on your podcast here today because I always kind of get a thrill when someone actually just wants to have a conversation about this kind of stuff. So thank you again. Well, um, thank you. The, today was an absolutely wonderful episode. I've loved every single second of it. So hopefully the lifters will get a lot from this as well because it's and, been wonderful. So, so Matt, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Heavy Metal Strength Coach Podcast. Yeah.